This is the first episode of the second season of The Meridian, and we're once again coming to you from Lund Observatory in southern Sweden. It is the 4th of March, and we're starting the season with a very special guest crossing our meridian today. Ora Fox is an instrument scientist at the Space Telescope Science Institute working on Mid-Infrared Instrument, or MIRI, which is one of the four instruments on the James Webb Space Telescope. You might remember him as the creator of the telescope tournament that was on Twitter that we talked about last season. This season we're also bringing you some field reporting. As we mentioned last season, Nick and his research team at Lund Observatory were heading to La Palma to observe an exoplanet transit. Later in this episode we get to hear how that went. The Meridian. Hey Rebecca. Hi Nick, I've missed you so much. I've missed you too. Also missed doing podcasts a lot. Yeah, really missed it. I actually saw that we got over 800 listeners on the first season. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think my mum at least accounts for <laughs> half of it, but you know. But you know, I actually saw that Australia had dropped a few. Um, I know. I was yeah. just, we, we used to be second and then, you know, the US overtook us. Yeah, but... Uh, That's fun, we're going global. Speaking exactly. of Australia, how was it? Really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was nice and warm. Uh, I've got to see my family again. It's been over almost a year and a half since yeah. I've uh, been able to see them. So that was really nice. Got to hang out with them, go camping with my brother. You know, it was a, um, yeah, it was just fun all around, actually. Just the thought of going camping right now for me is just crazy. But we actually had snow for Christmas. So. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Which is, you know, weird for me. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. So actually, I wanted to ask you because, well, even of course, on this side of the planet, we heard about this Tonga volcano. How was it down there? Did you feel it in any way or? It's funny that you mentioned that because um, my parents went on a holiday when mm-hmm. that happened. And so they went to um, this really nice beach called Heim's Beach, which is supposed to have the whitest sand in the world. So my mom and dad went down there for like a weekend getaway and then they go and basically they just see these gigantic waves like crashing. And normally it's a really calm beach mm. and like everything had washed up. There was mud everywhere. And so like, and apparently this was throughout the entire coastal system. They had just had a whole bunch of really rough um, waves. So the we were feeling it a little bit. I guess the strength of the impact did cascade to, wow. yeah, to Australia. Yeah, because yeah, you could really see it from space, right? Which is yeah. what I saw, like the pictures. And I was like, whoa. I know. It's just sort of mind boggling how big it was. So yeah. Um, Oh, but you were out camping, so did you see any, you know, stars? Um, I did. I mm-hmm. saw my beloved uh, Southern Cross, um, <laughs> so that's something that I've only missed. Mm-hmm. So obviously in Northern Hemisphere, if you want to figure out where North is, you have to use Polaris, mm-hmm. which is a Northern star. Um, we don't have one in uh, the Southern Hemisphere, but we do have the Southern Cross. And so there's a little rule trick that you can learn to um, basically determine where South is. And it's a constellation, right? Sort of pointing towards yeah, South? Um, yeah. Well, the the way you work is there's two pointer stars and then you have a cross and then you draw two lines which intersect and then you drop down a, a basically drop down a line towards the horizon. You'd have to sort of look at a video to really get a really good Yeah, sure. I was going to say for the listeners, Nick is doing a lot of like pointing right now, but that's not really helping. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> sure, you so, can use it. How was Sweden? How was Christmas? How was the cool, you know, weather? Did anything... Cool happen here. Um. Well, 
yeah, I don't know. Yeah, as I said, it was snow, which for southern parts of Sweden is is a big thing. Yeah. So that was really nice. Uh, otherwise, you know, it's been dark. <laughs> yep, fair enough. Uh, but that's nice because you get to see a lot of stars. Uh, and for one thing also, I like to really see, you know, ISS passing by. Yeah. It's one of my, like, treats and, you know, you know, you see it pass by and I might wave sometimes yeah. to the astronauts. And then, you know, 90 minutes later, it comes back again. And I think it's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, one other really cool thing happened on Christmas. I uh, guess. Yeah. Do you get presents? Um, well, I was actually referring to the tel- <laughs> uh, uh, James Webb telescope, but I did get presents. Yes. I was sort of thinking of it as the big Christmas present for all astronomers. Yeah, that definitely <laughs> was. Yeah. Well, we actually watched the live stream together, even across the. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. That, that was, was really nice. Yeah. Um, it was a perfect run too. I didn't hear. I think nothing went wrong at all. And so after the long wait and the jokes that it'll never actually ever come, it happened. And so. Uh, hopefully. Yeah, I can't believe it. Yeah. Really. Yeah. But I guess it's going to really push us forward in science. And yeah, I'm excited to see what kind of data it will bring. And mm-hmm. there's a chance that people in Lund might even be able to um, use that telescope. So, sure. Yeah. But we had this idea that we would go deeper into James Webb, right? Oh, yeah. What's, uh, how, do you, how do you plan that out? So we actually invited Ori Fox, oh. uh, an astronomer who's been working on the James Webb, into this podcast. Well, I'm excited to hear what he has to say. Yeah. So let him invite him. All right. And now I'd like to welcome Ori Fox, who is a scientist working on the mirror instrument on the James Webb Space Telescope. So, welcome, Ori. Hi. Good morning. I'm yeah. Good morning. To be here. Yeah. So it's morning for you. You're joining us from. Yeah, where are you? Well, I'm I'm in Washington D.C., but mm-hmm. uh, the Space Telescope Science Institute is uh, up in Baltimore. It's about a sixty-minute, one-hour drive for me. But we're all teleworking these days anyway, so right, um, I'm okay. at home. Okay, okay. Well, that's nice. <laughs> but yeah, I hope you've had a good morning so far. Um, so I want to, before going into James Webb, sort of hear your background to. Yeah, your background in science and how you end up working on James Webb. Yeah. So in graduate school, I started uh, with the intent to work on radio astronomy and radio instrumentation. And uh, I went to University of Virginia, where uh, you're right outside of Green Bank. And when I arrived, the first person I met with was not a radio astronomer, but an infrared astronomer. A professor named Mike Skretsky, who had just started a brand new infrared instrumentation lab and was looking for students mm-hmm. with a lot of money and a lot of energy. I couldn't resist and I joined that group. <laughs> and I started working on infrared sensor technology in that lab and applying it to telescopes. Yeah. And that grew into a postdoc at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Mm-hmm. where I joined the JWST project when they were selecting infrared sensors for the near-infrared spectrograph. And one thing turned into another, and I ended up uh, finally working with a permanent position now at the Space Telescope Science Institute on the mid-infrared instrument MIRI team. Right. So James Webb has fairly long history already. It's only been to space uh, barely a few months, right, or weeks, but it already has a fairly long history. So when did you join the the team? Yeah, 
That's a great question. I joined, I actually joined in 2006. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I wrote my proposal for uh, participating in that program with NASA, uh, that my intent was to do three or four years of groundwork. And then I would be prepared for the launch in 2009, 2010. And I would be able to hit the ground running and do my science. Wow. <laughs> so that turned into uh, about, you know, 10, 10, 10 or 12 more years longer than I expected. But that was a, a nice bonus, as a matter of fact, because it allowed me to uh, really set my science foundations. I don't think I would have been ready in 2010. So I'm in a much better place in my career right now to really make use of the web. Right. So what have you been doing on that extra time? Is it to develop the tool better or more working on like the, the science that James Webb will do? Yeah. At that point, a lot of the work that I had done was out of my hands uh, and in the hands of the engineers uh, that were building the spacecraft and the sun shield mm -hmm. uh, out at Northrop Grumman. So uh, during that time, I was focusing mostly on my science. Uh, I did another postdoc at the at Berkeley, and I was uh, developing my science program to study uh, the dust in supernova systems. Uh, it turns out that there's a lot of dust in our universe that is necessary to form stars and planets, uh, including our own solar system. Mm -hmm. But we still don't really understand where all that dust comes from. There's a lot of really good theories, but the observations don't always match the theories. And so one mm -hmm. hypothesis is that uh, the dust is coming from supernovae. Uh, so we had a long study with the Spitzer Space Telescope to look for dust. But by the time I started that program, Spitzer had lost all of its cryogens by design. And it was only able to operate at the shortest wavelengths, 3.6 and 4.5 microns. Right. And we started getting a lot of hints that dust were in these supernova systems, but we could never measure the amount of dust. Mm -hmm. Because to do that, you need to go out to much longer wavelengths where bulk of the dust is emitting. Mm -hmm. And so we really set the stage for the James Webb Space Telescope, specifically the mid-infrared instrument, because we can now go out to those wavelengths. And so it's going to be really exciting to start to see uh, what we've been missing all these years. Oh, so that's really what your motivation for James Webb is to study the, the gas in the Milky Way. Uh, the it's or, or really the to study the dust around yeah. supernova explosions. Mm. Most of the, all of these supernovae are, are not in the Milky Way, they're extragalactic. Mm. Uh, and so they're pretty far away. And so that's my science. Mm -hmm. I do want to touch on the, the reason the web was built was not necessarily for, for dusty supernovae, although that's the beauty of all telescopes. Some of the best discoveries are not what they were designed for, right? Mm -hmm. But the telescope itself was built in the infrared because that's the only way to detect galaxies at the edge of the universe. Right. And that's because our universe is expanding and the expansion is fastest at the edge of the universe. And so those objects are the most redshifted. And so their light goes all the way into the infrared. And so if we want to see the birth of the first stars and galaxies, mm -hmm. we need a really whopping big infrared mm -hmm. telescope. Yeah, so the size is really important here, right? Uh, 
because I've tried to sort of understand how that links with Hubble. So Hubble is smaller, of course, but and James Webb is bigger, but still they have similar resolution or it's a bit of a uh, tricky concept for me to grasp, actually. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I think everybody's been wondering, how does Hubble compare to the web? Mm -hmm. And it's it's a tough comparison. I wrote a, a little Twitter yeah. thread on this yeah. because it, it it's such a tough comparison to make. Hubble works at optical wavelengths, mm. and that was again part of the design. Um, we wanted a space telescope that could see all of our nearby galaxies uh, and stars in really high precision resolution. Uh, during one of the servicing missions, I think it was number four in 2010, that's when we really got a sensitive infrared instrument put on the wide field camera three. There were other infrared instruments, but infrared technology has come a long way since Hubble was launched. And that was the beauty of Hubble. There were these servicing missions. And WIFC3 provided a, a glimpse of what JWST will be able to do. It provided infrared sensitivity. And so we were able to detect higher redshift galaxies that were you know receding from us due to this hubble flow right um and so you know maybe for the audience a, a great analogy mm -hmm. is when you bake a cookie right everyone likes this chocolate chip cookie analogy yeah uh all the chocolate chips start off at the same distance relative to each other basically mm -hmm. but as that cookie expands the two chocolate chips that are right next to each other will move away mm -hmm. by a certain distance and then two other chocolate chips will move away from each other by the same amount. But the two chocolate chips at the edge will move away from each other at a much larger rate mm. than two chocolate chips that are near, next to yeah. each other. And it's the same, same for our universe. So the, the objects at the edge of the universe are moving away from us the fastest. And Hubble started to, we started to notice that Hubble could only see back, it would be like looking in a, a, a uh, an, a picture album of a child's life and being only able to go all the way back to when they were two or three years old. Mm. You know that they were born at some point, but you just don't know what they look like when they were babies or, yeah. or one year old. And we realized we needed the web in the infrared. So how does that compare? Well, it turns out that your resolution of a telescope, the, your, how, 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 um, uh, how well you're able to resolve two objects that are next to each other uh, is based off of two variables. One is the telescope size itself, the diameter. The larger your diameter, the, the better your resolution, but also your wavelength. And so the longer the wavelength, the worse your resolution. Yeah. <laughs> and it turns out that when you compare Hubble's diameter mm -hmm. and wavelength regime, which is the optical, and the web diameter and wavelength regime, which is the near infrared, mm. that the resolution is actually quite similar. Right. So you're not gaining a lot when it comes to resolution. However, you are gaining a lot because you now have a large diameter telescope that can detect light at the mm. infrared. And that mm. just creates an entirely new way to look at the universe. Mm. And so... When people say that the web is a uh, the, the the next generation Hubble, that's not really correct. There is a next generation Hubble that will probably happen. They call this 
the UV optical infrared telescope or the large optical UV infrared telescope. And that might be still 15, 20 years mm. away. The web is not the successor. It's actually maybe the, the younger cousin. Mm -hmm. And they are going to work in tandem together to really discover new parts of the universe. Wow, that's great. And it, it's, you really explained that well. So even though James Webb is larger, as you say, you're working in another wavelength regime. So, well, it ends up being similar to Hubble. Exactly. And that's pretty cool. So uh, I'm curious to, yeah, we all saw, I guess, James Webb launch. Uh, I guess for you, it was Christmas Day. Or here in Sweden, we actually celebrate Christmas on the 24th. Mm, uh, we're strange that. like that. So um <laughs> How did it feel to see James Webb launch? And was it the best Christmas present ever? <laughs> it was a very exciting Christmas. You know, the story I like to tell <laughs> is I, I'm Jewish. And so I don't celebrate. Mm, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, there's no reason to apologize. But this gave me a new reason to celebrate Christmas, right? <laughs> I, I started to believe in Christmas miracles. Uh, it was very exciting. My wife's family does celebrate Christmas mm -hmm. and we were with them. And uh, we have a child and we moved the present opening to the night before so that there wouldn't be any competition. Oh, so Swedish style. And <laughs> there you go. Right. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it was we woke up and it, it was really exciting. I was doing a podcast with a number of my friends mm -hmm. while my family was also in the room watching. And so I had my earpiece in one ear and I was watching it, you know, with the uh, other ear. And I was, you know, rocket technology has come a long way. And so I was pretty confident. And the Ariane 5 is a very reliable rocket. So I was pretty confident. But nonetheless, when that countdown started, I got nervous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was just such a beautiful launch. I mean, it was just flawless. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was so exciting to watch. It was a cloudy day down uh, at the launch facility. Uh, and the the rocket went, you know, was only visible for about, you know, 10 seconds before it went through the clouds. Yeah. Uh, but then they had that simulation and they had the real time telemetry data yeah. and everything went, you know, hit the mark. And so that was really exciting. And if you haven't heard the news, mm -hmm. uh, it was such a successful launch uh, that they were able to conserve mm -hmm. the maximum, well, close to the maximum amount of fuel. And that will enable them to extend this mission mm. for, you know, the, the minimal amount the mission was required was five years. Mm -hmm. uh, but now they think they may be able to go close to 20 years. What? That, yeah. I, I knew that, like, the launch was so successful that, as you say, they managed to extend the lifetime of James Webb. But up to 20 years, that's quite an achievement from the, the launch people. <laughs> yes, it, it was. Uh, we are all thanking them. <laughs> very much yeah i can imagine so yeah because there were a lot of you know points of catastrophic failure involving well not only the launch which is usually like after launch often you can be like wow now we're now we're out of the desert right but with james webb there's not been that story so a lot of points could go wrong with unfolding of the mirror and all of that so but that's gone well right yeah, so they called this the, you know, when they landed on Mars, uh, NASA landed on Mars uh, a few years ago, they had something called the six minutes of terror where yeah. 
uh, it was going through the atmosphere and it lost connection with the earth. And, and then they weren't, they wouldn't know if it landed successfully for six minutes or something like that. And so NASA branded the web uh, having something called the 28 days of terror Ugh. because instead of six minutes, mm. because there were 28 days of maneuvers where I now forget, but something like, something like, you know, 200 moving parts where if any one of them uh, didn't work, uh, you could have potentially have a catastrophic mission. Mm. And again, I mean, you got to give it to the engineers who put this all together. Everything from what I can tell uh, went flawlessly. Mm -hmm. And those 28 days went very smoothly. NASA has been reporting on the mission from, you know, I should point out this is a, a NASA, ESA and Canadian yeah. mission. Uh, so a lot of times people say NASA, but really all three have, have contributed quite significantly. Mm. Uh, but NASA's running the official blog at the moment, and they've been reporting on this, and it's just fascinating to read all of the different maneuvers. And they have a simulation of the spacecraft uh, showing you how it was unfolding and, you know, during each step of the process. Mm. And uh, everything worked. Nothing got jammed. The telescope uh, opened, the sun shield opened, the mirrors opened. Uh, all the electronics turned on. And most recently, we really picked a great day to do this interview because I'm not sure if you've heard the latest news. They they got uh, light from a, an actual star. Yes, I saw. All... Or 18 points of it, I saw. That's right. So they have 18 mirrors on this that are not currently in line. That's the next step. Mm -hmm. But they were able to show mm -hmm. that the starlight was reflecting off all 18 mirrors and onto mm. the detector. And so you saw 18 replications of a, of a single star. So it's the point now that, well, they will puzzle the pieces together and like angle the mirror so that you get one star. That's exactly right. It's mm. a, it's a long, it's a, it's about a three month process. Oh, wow. Okay. Believe so a little, little at a time. They do a little at a time and then they mm. have a, a coarse phasing and then they have a fine phasing. And then they have to, once they do that with the primary alignment instrument, which is the, mm. the, the near infrared camera, then they have to do that for all the other instruments. Uh, mm. So there's four instruments plus the fine guidance mm. sensor, which does the uh, steering of the mm -hmm. telescope and the tracking. Uh, so they have to get the, the, uh, the, the, the focusing done for all of these instruments. And so it takes mm. some time. Yeah. I really appreciated that they posted that picture because I I was thinking that perhaps they wouldn't do that because people might be like, oh, is this what we paid all of that money for? Uh, and, you know, expecting, I guess, grand pictures from the beginning. But I really like that they, they show the process, right? It's not just sending something up there. Now you have these mirrors and you have to make sure they're aligned. And it's nice that they take the public along all of the steps. Oh yeah, I think so, one hundred percent. And there yeah. are those trolls out there. I've already seen yeah. the comments. This is <laughs> oh, what, you have. I, what this is what ten billion dollars gets you, but uh, <laughs> you know, I, I on the other hand, yeah, this is what ten billion dollars gets you. It's the first, you know, uh, eighteen mirror telescope in in mm. space, and uh, it's it's exciting to watch them do this for the first time. Mm. So yeah, uh, I, I I think it's I think it's great that they're sharing all that. Mm. So the mirror instrument that you've been part of has also been partly actually built here or constructed here in Sweden, in Stockholm and in Chalmers, making the filters for it. So 
could you sort of go into a bit what Miri will do and you're part of it? Yeah. So first of all, the web has four, like I said, four yeah, instruments. Yeah, of course, that's four yep, instruments. And yeah. the fine guidance sensor, which is our, mm. our tracking uh, system. And each of the instruments serves a different purpose. Um, and if we want, we can get into all the detail that you want. But three of the instruments, they all begin with NIR. And NIR is spelled N-I-R, mm -hmm. and that stands for mm -hmm. Near Infrared. And then they have some other ending on the end of them. Mm. And that's because Near Infrared technology is um, quite advanced. And so uh, they were able to build three complex instruments around near infrared detectors. Mm. Um, the mid infrared is, so near infrared goes from about uh, one to five microns or so. So our, our eyes are sensitive to uh, about point, you know, 0.5 to one micron. That's what our eyes see. Sure. And then the near infrared is just past the red light, right? So one to five mm -hmm. microns. And then the mid infrared we, you know, it depends which astronomer you ask, but for the web's purpose, the mid infrared is defined from about five to 30 microns. Sure. And uh, there, the technology for detectors is a little bit less mature. It's not as used widespreadly, widespread use uh, for different technology or military. Uh, so there's not as much technological development there. Detectors are a little bit harder to come by. Mm -hmm. And also, um, it turned out that through a bit of ingenuity, they were able to develop and design this incredible instrument that what had four, it was, it's sort of like a Swiss army knife. It has four modes, mm -hmm. really five, depending mm -hmm. on how you count in one. And so the mid-infrared instrument has a imager, which does just as you would imagine it, it can image the sky, take a picture. And that requires just one detector. Mm -hmm. uh, then uh, we also have a uh, spectrograph where uh, you are able to position the uh, um, source onto a slit. And then instead of a filter, you can move in a, 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 a prism, which will uh, create a dispersed light. Yeah. And that creates a uh, what we call the LRS. It's the low resolution spectrograph. And that light gets dispersed onto the same detector as your imager. Uh, we also have a coronagraph. Again, this is a uh, sort this is an optical component uh, that allows you to uh, place a small uh, sort of blocking, uh, filter right on top of a, a star mm -hmm. so that you can see potential planets around that star. You're blocking out the really bright light. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that though we have three coronagraphs and that's built into our focal plane array. And so that allows you to see, uh, use a coronagraph again on that same detector, which is an imager. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that a lot of the light from uh, exoplanets comes out in the mid-infrared. So this is really going to be a widely used um, uh, piece of the machinery. And then we also have inside of the mid-infrared <laughs> instrument, a what we call the medium resolution spectrograph. And mm -hmm. that is a whole nother part of the instrument with its own two detectors. And the way that this works, it's called an integral field unit, an IFU. And what you have is a, a grading 
where the light comes in and uh, different parts of uh, when the light comes in from, from your field of view, different parts of the light hit different parts of the grating mm -hmm. and it creates a dispersed spectrum of your field uh, onto a number of different spectra. So you can imagine that, let's say you're, you're looking up and there's maybe nine stars in the sky and they're all in different parts of your field of view those stars will have their light dispersed into nine individual spectra. And then you can recreate a three-dimensional cube that not only allows you to look in image space, but also in wavelength space of those nine stars. Wow. So that's how an IFU works. So, so we really have it all inside uh -huh. of this instrument. And we're going to be able to look at exoplanets, we're going to get, have uh, IFU capability. There's also a really cool mode called time series observations, where you take a lot of images really, really, really quickly in a row, mm -hmm. and you look for a star uh, that, that may be dimming on short time scales. And uh, what happens in that case is a, a, a planet might be mm -hmm. passing in front of the star, and you're able to measure how mm. big that planet is. And that's how another way that scientists study these exoplanets, which again, I want to point out is great for the web because 10 years ago, the field of exoplanet astronomy was relatively mm. immature, but we've had a lot of space missions since then. And we have a lot of great new candidates yeah. to look at. Uh, and the web's going to really explore some of these systems and potentially see biosignatures for, uh, extraterrestrial life uh that's the ultimate goal um but miri so so miri really has a lot of options so it really sounds like james webb is uh has four swiss knives with lots of swiss swiss knives embedded in them there you go yep wow that's amazing and it's cool as you say with the exoplanets since i can also see it here at the department right we have the the team together with nick now that has started to really look at the uh, elements in exoplanets and it's a really bright field. So it's fun that James Webb can help out bringing this field even further. Yep. I'm very excited. That's so cool. And one thing I should point out, you mentioned this, I do want mm -hmm. to uh, highlight that the mid-infrared instrument is a European instrument. Right. And that was one of Europe's primary contributions to the web. Mm. Uh, it was it was primarily worked on uh, in the UK at this uh, facility called the Astronomy Technology Center, ATC, uh, which is in Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. However, uh, I'm, I'm looking at a map here and uh -huh. I'm counting somewhere around 12 or 13 different countries contributed different aspects of that instrument. And like you said, mm. uh, st the University of Stockholm con contributed filters and gratings to the filter wheel. So yeah, uh, that's pretty cool. I hadn't realized that until today. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing what you can do with, uh, you know, collaborations and it, with these kinds of giant missions. I guess that's what you need to bring all of the experts together and produce the best telescope that you can. Mm hmm. Also, you know, speaking of telescopes, I guess this is a bit of a fun question, but the way I found you, right, was through your telescope tournament on Twitter <laughs> that brought together a lot of astronomers, which was amazing. So thank you for that. Um, in the end, Gaia won over Hubble with, wasn't even a few per, uh, percentages, it was barely that, right? So 
I'm curious, which telescope did you root for? Well, wow. Can you even vote on your own polls on Twitter? I did. I did not vote on my own poll. <laughs> However, you, you are allowed. I did not vote. Uh, that that's a that's a really good question. You caught me off guard. That's a secret. How, however, <laughs> I, will, <laughs> I will tell you this will be the big reveal. You know the insider information. Uh, <laughs> Lovely. I I am a Hubble fan at heart. Uh, Hubble has really mm. made my career until now. I've done a lot of work on Hubble, mm -hmm. and when I every time I get data, I'm just always fascinated by it. Uh, it, it, it continues to wow me. Yeah, I must admit Gaia is an exciting mm. uh, telescope and it has revolutionized our field for sure. Mm. But I have a special place in my heart for <laughs> Hubble. Yeah, and I guess it's uh, a lot of European astronomers have a special place in their hearts for Gaia as well. Right. <laughs> so, okay, I think I want to start wrapping this up. Thank you so much for your time, Ori. It's been amazing. And I hope we get a lot of fun science out of James Webb once the mirrors are aligned. Yeah. And thanks for having me. So the mirrors will be aligned in, in a few months. And then mm -hmm. uh, I believe we have to start commissioning the instruments, which means yes. running through and making sure that every all the electronics work, the filter wheels are moving, mm. the data are streaming in and look, you know, nominal. And once that's done... Nominal, um, the favorite word. <laughs> <laughs> right. What? That's everyone's favorite word now, right? Uh, once that's done, we should be starting to take first light images. I don't want to give an exact time frame, but I do believe that by early fall at the latest, mm -hmm. uh, assuming everything stays on, on course, uh, they are expecting to have some real first light aligned color images for the public to see uh, and hopefully feel redeemed for the $10 billion price tag. And I, I guess I want to encourage everyone who, who's interested and want to follow along that they can actually follow you on Twitter because you tweet quite a lot about this. So it's at Fox underscore Ori. Correct. Yeah, that's why I learn about James Webb right now. So Awesome. I'm glad to hear it. Thank you, Ori. Have a lovely day. All right. Thank you. Astronomers around the world may work on many things. Some write computer code all day in order to simulate galaxies colliding. Some design the next generation of instruments and space telescope. And some are part of huge international collaborations that survey vast parts of the universe or analyze the data of those surveys. Some of us apply for time on telescopes, and if we manage to convince the time allocation committee that our project is worthy, then we may even get to travel to those telescopes and operate them for a few nights. In the fall of 2021, a team of Lund Observer astronomers was granted time on the Nordic Optical Telescope on La Palma. Jens Hoymaches and his PhD students Nick Borsado and Bibiana Prino together with Elin Sandvik, who's a master's student here, went together with the researcher Brian Thorsbro, and they all started to plan their trip to the telescope. Going observing is always a huge undertaking, but this time it was an extra bit challenging. Not only is the team concerned about the pandemic, who may cause complications, but there's also an active volcano to worry about. Kubri Viejra started erupting in September 2021 and was active for about three months covering the whole island with ash. Lava from the volcano destroyed more than 1,600 buildings. 
And the midwinter special episode of the Meridian, we actually got to hear a bit from Nick and Bibiana who were preparing for their trip. Now we get to hear a field report from day two of their trip. They have arrived to the island and soon they will be driving up the mountain to start observing. Hey, Nick Bosada here, coming to you from Rock de los Muchachos at the Nordic Optical Telescope. Today is day two of our trip, and oh boy, I tell you, getting here was an adventure. So the Nod is located on the Canary Islands La Palma, which has an active volcano currently. And you might be thinking, I don't think travelling to an island which is currently vomiting lava and spewing volcanic ash into the air is a good idea. And my mum would probably agree with you. But I'm here, and getting here was an adventure, and that's part of life, really. We had to use planes, trains, boats and cars, all in conjunction with each other because things just kept getting cancelled. But we got here eventually, which is the main point. But I'll get Bibi to help me recount it. It'll be a bit more fun having a back and forth with her. Speaking of, here she is. Hey Bibi. Hey Nick. How are you going? I'm good. I'm very good. I'm happy we made it here. Yeah, so am I. Are you a bit tired though? Yes, Yeah. It was absolutely. A, it was a bit of an adventure getting here, wasn't it? Oh yes. Oh. <sighs> yeah. I'm sort of surprised that I did not suspect that this could happen because yeah. I was sort of like super happy when we arrived in Frankfurt uh, at the airport and I did not really think of the possibility that something could go wrong. Yeah, it all seemed to be going quite smoothly. Yeah. So, like, I guess, how about you, like, you walk us through the flights? How were they? Um, so, we took the flight from Gothenburg to, Ham- uh, to Hamburg, to Frankfurt, sorry. Yep. And that flight was all fine. We were perfectly on time. We made it also to this very early flight. We managed to, to arrive in, in Frankfurt. Mm-hmm. And there we sort of got the first time this message that something would not go well in the sense of we actually entered the plane everything was fine and then or no we didn't enter the plane we sort of entered the bus to go to the plane and we were standing in this bus and at some point the driver said yeah we have to wait a little bit more and we were like oh no but it's so warm in here and we were definitely not dressed for a warm day yeah right Um, and it was also not warm outside it was just really warm inside this bus and they had mistakenly taken the wrong plane and had to switch planes. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Happens sometimes, I yeah, guess. Yeah, I guess, I guess all planes do look kind of similar, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then when we finally made it into the plane, actually the captain told us that the airport was closed and that it might happen that the airport would not open yeah. in La Palma mm-hmm. and there might be the possibility that we get diverted to Tenerife instead. And this was actually the stages all throughout the flight and the captain repeated that several times. And then at the very end, like an hour before sort of supposed landing on La Palma, uh, he told us, yeah, this is actually happening. So look out the window. There were There is the volcano. You were supposed to go there, but we're not. Yeah. And it was pretty surreal looking out your window and seeing this, you know, cloud of ash extending into the sky and, and also realizing that our plans has kind of gone askew, hadn't they? Yeah, and also I think the fact that normally when you get diverted to another airport, that might not be that big of a deal because you sort of take the next train or something. Yeah. Given the fact that these are islands, that was a bit more difficult. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And most flights were cancelled, so we couldn't fly from Tenerife to La Palma, which we had to actually, well, figure out how to get a boat across to um, that island itself. But uh, before we talk about the boat, what was it like on Tenerife? Did you, how'd you feel when you finally got off the plane? Oh, I would say the first 
thing I realized was, oh, yes, this is a lot warmer than I actually expected. Yeah, right. Because, uh, yeah, I was prepared to go up a mountain to probably have like 10 degrees max during the day. And I was sort of wearing too much. So I really had to get off some clothes in order to adjust to that. But other than that, I was happy that we at least made it close to La Palma. Yeah. Even though we had quite a journey in front of us. And also the people on the ground didn't really know where to bring us or how to transport us to to the port in order to catch a ferry. So it was really a bit of guessing game, I would say. Yeah, we ended up having to find a taxi driver who sort of took a very yeah. liberal understanding of what a speed limit was and got us to the docks and stuff. But it how w- did you feel about it? Um... Part of me I was a bit surprised and also part of me kind of knew that we something probably could have gone wrong, right? We're going flying into a vol- you know, an island with a volcano in it. Um, not into a volcano, so, like, <laughs> No, yeah, hopefully not. Um, but it was, I think what was really cool is that we all really banded together as a group. Like everybody was doing their own thing. If someone needed help with someone, like you, you, when you, well, when you landed, you were running around like a headless chicken trying to get us all organized. And so like, <laughs> you know, we just took turns making sure that your bags were safe. So then all you had to focus on was getting us to the next spot. And then I know Brian, who's this, you know, our wise mentor of the group managed to find a taxi out of nowhere and we got through things. And we all sort of uh, did what we could to make it a bit more um uh, a bit more easier for us and I think it wasn't really in doubt that we were going to get to La Palma it yeah. was just we just needed to support each other so that was fun it was kind of like a uh, I guess also the point was that we knew we would make it but we weren't quite sure how or yeah which mean sort of we knew that we would have to take a boat but there was always the possibility that we could also take our cars already in Tenerife and then take the boat with the cars or not so there were a lot of options that we had to consider yeah and given that Jens was also stranded on Tenerife we sort of wanted to meet up before actually traveling (laughs) over exactly so we were all one big group getting there over that last leg um so I guess that, that we basically just walked around a little bit, got some dinner, and then we had to wait in this really long queue. Um, mm. But apparently that was actually quite a, a benefit because we ended up being on Spanish television. Yeah. So um, I guess we'll put a link somewhere of us, you know, photo bombing some people being interviewed. But it was a kind of a surreal experience to find that, but... Um, I actually didn't make it into the video. Oh, I was hiding behind oh. everyone else. <laughs> I think one time it was you covering me and the other time it was Jens covering me. So I'm really hiding behind everyone. Please don't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I do quite like uh, Jens is giving the camera a good look in the shot as well. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, maybe we're partly famous now in Spain. Probably not, though, because everyone was in a crowd. Yeah. But then, um, so it was... We, we flew in. What, when, what time did we fly in? It was... I think we arrived around one local time. Yeah, one local time. And then the, when did the, the boat actually leave? Uh, I think that was at eight local time. Yeah, in the evening, right? Yeah. Yeah, so we... And, like, no one told us that. We just ended up getting to the port. And, and so, basically, we had been waiting a long time. We were tired, you know, lack of sleep because the flight earlier. We had to get up at four o'clock in the morning. So... We finally just get onto this ferry and then we find some seats and we crash. Um, Yeah, and um, how was the boat trip for you? Um, I tried to sleep a little bit because I was really tired. Um, I kept looking at the screens in the front and saw over and over again the same 
uh, clip of I think it was the Notebook by, yep. by Nicholas Sparks, and yeah. I was just there like oh, again this this part. Oh yeah, sure, continue. But yeah. I tried to sleep. I tried to eat something, and it actually went quite fast. So I was was happy when we finally arrived. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, it was it was kind of I got like my first taste of well, taste of the ash is probably a bad way to describe it, <laughs> but. I, um, we, I explored the boat a little bit with Jens and a bit with you as well. Um, we went out onto the deck and so you could actually, the, the ash floor was pretty um, strong. We had our masks on and stuff, but if you stuck your head out past the side of the boat where the wind's all smacking you in the face, you also were getting smacked with what felt like sand, but it was actually ash too. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of like a, almost like a taste of what was to come to get into La Palma. But I think, yeah, we'd, we just really sat and you know conserved energy and then we finally got to La Palma and we tried waiting for a taxi that like what one came every 10 to 20 minutes and there's about 300 people mm-hmm. wanting a taxi or something um it was quite the adventure I would say and also yeah. like arriving there and then realizing hey wait it's actually raining ash yeah so I don't know whether you guys have seen that before but I feel like Standing there and actually feeling the ash rain, yeah, and then looking on the ground and everything is just covered and black, and you're like, "This is wrong. This yeah. is not how this <laughs> is supposed to be." Yeah, that was really, really impressive and very interesting. Well, I remember walking along like past the boats on the docks, and like they're all like they're all white except the tops of them are just mm-hmm. black. And I remember Ellen um, was like looking at, "Oh, that's a cool way to paint a boat." It's like that's that's not a way to paint a boat. Like they're like that's ash, and then we were both like, "Oh." <laughs> But yeah. Like, yeah, this stuff was thick. Like it was like you had if you had your phone out and you're just looking at your phone, you could see the ash falling on your phone. Mm-hmm. I was able to draw my name on the road. Um, there was no cars on the road, but like that was how thick it was, thick it was, and it was getting in our clothes as well. So like, yeah, it was kind of weird to be in this kind of rain in a way. Like it was a uh, um, everyone kind of wanted to get out, but we finally got to a hotel that we had to book last minute and like relax. And it's now this morning and we're really like getting ready to gear up to, well, we have to race to the knot now because we've got observing tonight. So, yeah. yeah. Are you excited about that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I'm sort of still still thinking of hopefully we didn't forget anything. Hopefully yeah. we have everything prepared. Hopefully we're all set. And also since the time is a bit tight or tighter than we expected, um, we don't really have time to go over it all together again yeah, so yeah. we sort of just hope we did everything right and yes exactly it will work out yeah right? yeah we've got a good team behind us and i'm excited to get started yes. well fingers crossed um and then we'll stay tuned for next episode where you get another update on how our observings go all right thanks bb thanks nick This was the first episode of the second season of The Meridian. It was hosted by me, Rebecca Forsberg, and Nicolas Posado, and our producer was Anna Anadottir. Our guest today was Ori Fox, and Bibiana Pinot assisted with the field reporting from La Palma. If you have any comments or questions about the show, then feel free to reach out to us via our emails or via the Lund Observe account on Twitter. In our theme at the beginning of the show, we could hear members of the research school that Astronomisk Ungdom held here at Lund Observatory last summer. Make sure you tune into next week's episode when we will have Diane Fouillet crossing our meridian, talking about her research on the history of the Milky Way. Thank you for listening.